I will make you as a light to the nations. Amen. You may be seated. Today is um, worship service will be a little bit different, actually quite different, and a little bit longer. So just so you know, this is what we call a guided or instructed liturgy. Today we'll be adding some elaboration and some explanation to our worship liturgy. Some of you may have worshipped in an Anglican tradition or a liturgical sacramental tradition for a long time, and never really heard much about why we do what we do, where it comes from. You may know this, every church actually has a liturgy, not just liturgical churches. The word liturgy means a public work. It means something that people do together. Some liturgies are simple, and some, like ours, are not. Um, Yet they all follow a predetermined order, right? Because um, Anglican worship is actually built on some of the earliest liturgies of the church. Uh, Because of that, the, the customary parts of the worship service are ordered as movements, They were knit together as a kind of journey through the redemptive story itself, through the gospel itself, with the purpose of actually inviting participation and even a kind of immersion on Sunday mornings together. Um, And so together we're just retelling the story with not just our heads, but our hearts and actually our hands with our whole bodies, with all of our senses. And that's the goal. We don't participate merely as a kind of audience or as a classroom but as people called to be a priesthood in our worship. And maybe you haven't thought about it that way, but we are a priesthood of all believers, and that's actually what we are entering into today in our worship. And that's actually why our service draws on Israel's worship history as our history too. And you'll hear throughout some echoes of that as we talk about it. And so let's talk about the service. We've already begun in one voice singing while the cross and the gospel are actually carried down, processed down the aisle to the front. Why do we do this? It's actually meant right off the bat to direct our attention, to direct our attention to the presence of Christ, who's fulfilling his promise to be with us. Because worship isn't really just about God or toward God. Christian worship is also with God. It's with God. It's revivifying, so to speak. It's celebrating his presence among us, which was the point of Israel's worship too, that God was mediating his presence through their ceremonies, through their worship, and and just being with them, fulfilling his promise that he would do the same. So when the cross passes by us on the way in, many of us actually, we bow in a loving reverence to Christ. Not everybody does, but some of us do. And it's really just a prayer of humble celebration and anticipation. You could call it a bodily act of honor. We're already engaging our bodies in both prayer and recognition and in worship. This procession also enacts Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2. He puts it this way, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In some churches, we actually, we, and I'll talk about the incense in a little bit, but in some churches that incense comes down first to begin to put us in the mind of the fragrance of the knowledge of him being spread everywhere so the ministers then follow behind the cross to serve God's people today and unless the bishop is here I as the rector or the spiritual director of the church I will always be last in that procession why because this reminds us of leadership in the kingdom in the kingdom the otherwise first or the greatest as we might think of them they are called to be the last and the least 
chief servants who are actually following the example of Christ's own humble servanthood. And this is why we do it that way and in that order. Our garments, these aren't just fancy clothes to make the parade a little more colorful and interesting. Uh, these are called vestments, and they are actually assigned to you. They aren't about me, they're assigned to you. You might even say they're kind of like a flag, so to speak. They convey to you our shared destiny as the church robed in white in the new creation of Revelation 7. So we get a glimpse of the end, the, the, the future to which we are headed, the fulfillment that is coming even as we live in the in-between. It's meant to say this to you. So the procession is a visual invitation to imagine and to follow as a priesthood of all believers. Again, it's about all of us. And then when our song of praise ended, we said what we call the acclamation, the opening acclamation, which during Epiphany is Isaiah 49, and we're letting God speak first. And that's what we do every Sunday of the year. Our first words in worship are either from God, they are to God, or they are wholly about God. They're not about us. And they're appropriate to the season that we're celebrating. And now our next participation is a prayer that's at least 1,200 years old. We call it um, the Collect for Purity, and some people jokingly call it the Scary Prayer. It reminds us of the place of reverence and holy awe in our relationship to an all-powerful and an all-knowing God. It's about this very honest and very exposed moment of worship that we have in God's presence, where we're longing to be purified, where we're longing to love God fully and perfectly in the beauty of His holiness together today. It's aspirational, right? And it pulls on us, it tugs on us. The collect for purity, though, actually began as the prayer the priests would pray, the clergy would pray before they ever came in, that this would happen in us and, and, and through us and then for the congregation. But we've brought this prayer in recent centuries out that all of us would pray this prayer together as the priesthood of all believers. So let's stand together and we're going to pray the prayer uh, together today. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. All desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a first and great commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets.
The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you revealed the way of eternal life to every race and nation. Pour out this gift anew that by the preaching of the gospel, your salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. So after the summary, uh, or after the colic for purity came what we call the summary of the law from Matthew 22 to remind us that our spiritual lives are inextricably linked to the moral vision of God. During the upcoming season of Lent, this summary that we say, um, it will be replaced by the whole Decalogue, which it summarizes, the Ten Commandments. And we as God's people, we know that there is a spiritual, there is a moral, there is an ethical weight upon humanity. We who bear the image and the likeness of God. But here's the thing, apart from God's mercy, we cannot bear that burden. We cannot bear it. And so we respond with the Kyrie eleison we said today, which just translates from the Latin, Lord have mercy. This is our call for God's mercy found in Jesus, for the, for the mercy required for us to, to live, to speak, to act as those he's called. And when we depend on him, these commands actually become a beautiful calling for which we're empowered. So our cry for mercy is also a cry for power. At other times of the year uh, during this moment, sometimes we do both, uh, we'll, we'll include singing the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which has been used in Christian worship since at least the fourth century. It's a kind of proclamation. It's really a kind of centering of our worship that begins with what the angels first proclaimed to the shepherds in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then after the Kyrie that we sang today, I prayed the collect of the day, or the collect if you will. We call it a collect because it was actually once the summary of various collected prayers throughout the parish from people who submitted them beforehand by the congregation. But as you might imagine, if you got a lot of those, you had to summarize it into one prayer. And we actually do this together as a worldwide church praying the same prayer, collecting a prayer with a shared theme and again, praying it together around the world. It's often related to the special day we're celebrating or to the lessons or the scriptures that we will be reading, which brings us to the lessons and to the gospel. Let me just give you a small heads up before we read and hear from them. Our readings do, they come from a three-year, what we call a lectionary. It's a cycle of readings that takes us through the whole council of scripture. Not every word, you know, of course, not every chapter, but through the whole council of scripture. Um, and it is shared by our brothers and sisters, millions of them around the world. We use an ACNA le uh, lectionary. There's an RCL lectionary, but they are really, really close. There are only a few differences and variations between us, what Lutherans use, uh, Methodists, and Orthodox, and even Catholics. So these readings belong together. And at the beginning of Advent in November this year, we started that lectionary over in year A. All right? You're going to get lots of fun facts throughout this time. So I hope it's helpful to you. I'm sure you've noticed this, that the Holy Gospel isn't something we just read from the lectern or um, we actually, because we use that for both preaching and for the reading of the word, it's called an ambo. You will never need that information again in the future, but because it's one, we call it an ambo and not a pulpit and a lectern, all right? Um, so I'm, I'm sure you noticed the Holy Gospel isn't just read, it's actually brought out, it's enacted, so to speak, by our deacon. 
She brings it out into the midst of the people to read it. That's what she's about to do. And this actually symbolizes for us, reminds us of the incarnation, what Jesus came to us. And as the gospel is announced before and after it's read, we include our praises in response or in anticipation. It's a big deal to us. And many of us will actually trace the sign of the cross on our foreheads, on our lips, and on our hearts. What are we doing? We're praying. We're praying that the gospel would fill our thoughts, that it would fill our speech, and that it would fill our affections with its truth. And don't worry, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about crossing yourself a little bit later in case you have some questions about that. So let's hear from God's word now. A reading from Nehemiah chapter eight. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Sabbathiah, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. A reading from Psalm 67, the congregation will read the psalm in unison. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, 
I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you to be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The Gospel of the Lord. Christy, great job on the names in Nehemiah. It was a test. We, you passed. A plus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us today to be willing to hear it and to know that in your word and in your body, in your blood is life. Help us to receive life. Help us to believe again. Help us to know that the one true story of the world is the one that you have brought to us. 
and that you are continually offering, holding out to us, and we want to receive it again today. Make it our own. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. And for obvious reasons, uh, I have a very brief sermon today, but let me begin by mentioning the purpose, in some sense, of the sermon. Why do we preach every Sunday? Uh, It's pretty simple. The truth is, you've heard sermons, you've heard stories, you've heard plausible philosophies of life and so-called gospels all week long. You've been told that the source of your flourishing, the source of your happiness is buried maybe within you waiting to be unlocked or that it's found in realizing a career or achieving a status or securing a relationship. You've been told that happiness is found in maybe defeating or begrudging or revenging your enemies. We've all been told that the right kind of politics and progress will save us. And it's been subtly suggested that you'll live forever that you're the center of the universe, or conversely, you're a worm worthy only of shame for what your life has become. We've heard lots of things. You've been told that what describes you defines you, that your identity can be reduced to your desires. You've been told to look out for you and yours because after all, any other way is pretty messy, right? Messier. We've been told that we're producers and consumers, fundamentally, and we've had this complex apparatus of capitalism erected around us and even above us. It's sort of an inescapable way of life and a way of imagining our world. We've been told in a thousand different ways that God doesn't love us and that he can't be trusted if he exists even at all. You've been told a thousand things this week that fall somewhere between a very subtle, patient deceit or a deafening and demeaning condemnation. You've been lied to. There's a good chance that you've learned to lie to yourself. We all do that in some ways. And there's a good chance that you're believing it. We all do that, whether we realize it or not. And so the word of God, with which Jesus himself confronted profound temptations, attractive detours, and cunning lies in the wilderness, the word of God must speak to us. A constant theme of Jesus' own teaching echoed in these words. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He's recovering the truth for us. The word is meant not only to expose this prevailing lie that takes so many forms, and it illuminates and it leads us to the simple truth of our need for grace and for mercy, ultimately just orienting us and reorienting us around this table that proclaims it every Sunday, not just in word, but in sacrament, in receptivity, in touching and tasting, in acting on our belief. This table has been telling us the truth since Jesus himself first presided over it. This is the, we we hear this prophetic urgency and clarity in Jesus' startling words in John 6. His flesh, his blood, his life given for us and to us in grace and mercy. These hold the reality of hope. They hold the reality of redemption together. He's actually binding us to reality when we have lost it. This is Paul's concern in our reading today in 1 Corinthians 11. There's this this reality that I'm talking about. This truth is being obscured by the intrusion of other values, of their differences, economic and otherwise. These are distractions of selfishness, and they are missing the heart of the meal. They're missing the heart of reality. 
that is being unfolded in front of them, being given to them. And they're inviting a kind of condemnation, an unmaking, a lessening of who they are. So Jesus, the word of God, the logos, in other words, the central truth underlying all things, who taught his disciples to teach it, he established this new covenant between God, this new promise between God and humanity that day when he first presided over that meal, knowing that it was his actual broken body and spilled blood that would bring us to life. This is why our worship is what we call a ministry of word and of sacrament. These are the pillars of our worship. It's the preached word, the scriptures, and it's the reception of Christ's body and blood. They're the pillars of our worship, and they have been since at least those simple gatherings described in Acts 2.42. When Luke tells us the earliest church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And he goes on to say, and all came upon every soul. One of the earliest descriptions of Sunday gathering for worship can be found in Justin's Apology. Um, It was written around 155 or 157 AD. He wrote two of them. Justin had been a Roman philosopher, uh, complete with the, the philosophy cape he would wear walking around. It was such a huge part of his identity. But he came to faith when a brave Christian dared to tell him about Jesus and to say, that truth you're looking for, we've seen him. Christianity was a capital offense. And very shortly after this moment of evangelism, Justin actually witnessed the death of some Christians in the Colosseum. It was around this time that Polycarp, one of the last of the generation who actually followed the apostle John, was killed, was martyred as well. And this put him over the edge. This must mean something. This must be real. So what did he do? He used his platform to write these apologies. And these were explanations. They were arguments directly to the Roman emperor, Antoninus Pius. And he wanted to explain their practices. He wanted to explain what they were doing as Christians to ease this persecution. And among other things, he wanted to explain that we're not cannibalizing in some way that you think when we eat this bread and this wine, the body and blood, nor are we some kind of incest cult because we call each other brother and sister. These were some of the ideas that were swirling around. But here's how he described their worship. He said, and on the day called Sunday, there is a meeting in one place of those who live in the cities or the country, and the memoirs, we call them, of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. When the reader is finished, the presider urges and invites us to the imitation of these noble things. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. And when we have finished the prayer, bread is brought, and wine, and water, and the presider similarly sends up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability, which is what we always do, to the best of our ability, and the congregation assents, saying, Amen. The consecrated bread and wine are then distributed and received by each one, and then they are sent to the absent by the deacons. And we still do that. Those who prosper and who so wish contribute, each one as much as he, uh, of as much as he chooses to. And what is collected is deposited with the presider, and he takes care of the orphans and the widows. So as I said, Justin was, he was actually confronting misunderstanding about Christians, particularly about this eating of flesh and blood that sounded cannibalistic. But at a moment, think about this, when he could have downplayed the, all of this to an empty symbolism, this is what he actually said. He said this, he said, for we do not receive these things as common bread, 
and common drink. But as Jesus Christ, our Savior, being the incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught, key in on that, that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, it is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. Again, notice what he says, we also have been taught. This phrase is peppered all throughout these apologies that uh, he makes to Antoninus. He's a philosopher, but he takes great pains to be conservative in his explanation, not creative. He is passing along an apostolic legacy, the indispensable truth, the story, the true story they heard and embraced when it might seem inconvenient to tell it that way or even dangerous. And for Justin, it was dangerous. He would be martyred about 10 years after Polycarp. So let me just close with this thought. After several decades of studying people, the renowned social psychologist, you may have heard of him, Jonathan Haidt, he said this in his book, The Righteous Mind, and it's profound, I think. He said, the human mind is a story processor, not a logic processor. His point is this, not only do we as humans, uh, not only do we uh, live by more than sensory information or by instinct like animals, and, and nor do we merely live by assimilating facts and figures and patterns into a form of intellectual understanding. We make sense of our experience. We understand our place in the world through the stories that we've lived and the stories that we tell about ourselves and about others and to ourselves and to one another. We are uniquely conscious. And I believe this is the gift of God's image, God's likeness. We're conscious of ourselves and others, of responsibility. We're conscious of a world of good and evil. We look for and we make meaning. It doesn't matter who you are. We remember we empathize, we help, and we hope. Made in God's own likeness, we are deep calling to deep. And our stories are how we take soundings, so to speak, of the depths of who we are. Each of us and all of us together. And without a doubt, this underscores the importance of the truth of the stories by which we live and with which we finally die. The lies that find their way to us and into us are very, very powerful. They're real. But Jesus suffered the worst that they could do. The personal, the systemic, the corruption of relationship and religion and of society and government, all this fell on Jesus. And Jesus overcame these powers and these lies by turning uh, his suffering at their hands, his broken body, his spilled blood into the very life and the truth on which we can live. And he's enabling us to expose these things and to live through the worst that these lies can do to us and to our world, to make it better even. So this is the true story that we're telling on Sundays. It's an ancient story, but it's timeless. And it's the one we need to hear over and over and over again. It's a story that we are inviting the whole world to make their own. Do you believe it? Lord, that's our prayer, that you would give us grace and mercy and power to believe the truth in a world full of lies. We are not threatened by it. We are not unmade and undone, but we are yours. And we ask that the story, as we tell it again and again, 
even with the same words every Sunday, that it would hold us, even as we struggle at times to hold on to it. Lord, tell us this story again and help us to sing it to the world that you love. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So now we, we turn toward a response to the word. Uh, this is what we call this section uh, of our service. Having been encouraged, challenged to turn again to Jesus, we begin by confessing three things about us, actually, and about God. Through the Nicene Creed, we're going to profess or confess our faith in God alone. Through the prayers of the people, we are going to confess that the needs that we have are the ones which he alone can satisfy. And through the confession, we confess the sins which he alone can forgive. The Nicene Creed, which we'll say in just a moment, comes from the first ecumenical council of the worldwide church. This was in 325 A.D., trying to really clear some things up, and it's been used in the liturgy since at least the 5th century and is structured for us to emphasize the triune and to worship the triune God um, who, who has made himself known to us. So our deacon will typically lead this, so Beth is going to come now and do so. Let us affirm our faith through the words of the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> Excuse me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated. Our next response to the word is that of intercession uh, for the church and for the world followed by our confession. And again, we are the intercessors. We are the priesthood of all believers uh, bringing the world's problems before the Lord. The prayers are an invitation to the whole gathering. Uh, again, the whole priesthood to pray together. It might seem a little awkward at times that we open the floor, so to speak, to pray, but it's worth it, we feel like. And of course, there's an appropriate content and length to your prayers, which you do a great job with. But this kind of participation reminds us of our shared calling to pray. Everybody prays. 
And while we're on the subject of prayer, the thurible, as we call it, or thurifer, as some people call it, or censor, as some people call it. I don't know why there are three different things that we, we call it. This, uh, we have a little piece of charcoal in here, and then we put incense on that to burn. Why do we do this? Um, for centuries, the church has used the burning of incense to symbolize the prayers of the saints rising to God. This was a priestly symbol in Israel's tabernacle and temple, but it's also mentioned three times in John's revelation. The psalmist prayed this, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So you may smell the incense today as you come in. You may have even noticed, if you came in early enough, a, a light smoke in the air. And that's, that's a symbol of our prayers, but it's also a sensory reminder to us that this place, this gathering is different. You can see and smell that the atmosphere in which we are gathering is holy. It's holy because Jesus is here. It's holy because you're here. And so we want to even invite our senses to imagine that and to engage with that reality. So now we'll pray the prayers of the people. Let us pray. For the holy church of God, that we may be filled with truth and love and be found without fault at the day of your coming. For those who do not yet believe and for those who have lost their faith, that they may receive the light of the gospel. Lord, in your mercy. For Foley, our archbishop, and Steve, our bishop, with all assisting bishops, for all the clergy and people of our diocese and congregation, for those who are present and those who are absent, and today we pray especially for Church of the Holy Cross in Raleigh, North Carolina. Lord, in your mercy. <clears throat> For all who fear God and who believe in you, Lord Christ, that our divisions may cease and that all may be one as you and the Father are one. Lord, in your mercy. <clears throat> For the peace of the whole world, that a spirit of respect and forbearance may grow among nations and peoples, for those in positions of public trust, that they may serve justice and promote the dignity and freedom of every person. Lord, in your mercy. For the blessings upon all human labor and for the right use of riches of creation, that the world may be freed from poverty, famine, and disaster, for a blessing upon all who live and work in Greenville and our neighbors here in San Susi. Lord, in your mercy. For the poor, the persecuted and abused, for the sick, the mentally ill, and the downcast, for refugees and prisoners, and all who are in danger, that they may be comforted and healed and protected. Lord, in your mercy, for our enemies and those who wish us harm, and for all whom we have injured or offended, Lord, in your mercy, 
for all who have died in the communion of your church and those whose faith is known to you alone, that with all the saints they may have rest in that place where there is no pain or grief, but life eternal. Lord, in your mercy. We invite your prayers now, and we invite you to say the names of those from whom you are especially praying. Rejoicing in the fellowship of all the saints, let us commend ourselves and one another and all our life to Christ our God. Amen. Please stand or kneel if you're able as we confess our sins to God. Let us confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, amen. You may be seated. So you might say that our journey of restoration has begun and it continues all the way to the altar, all the way to the table, to the gift of communion that Jesus offers us. We are forgiven. And as the word reveals our sinfulness, uh, we respond with confession and with repentance. In John 20, 23, Jesus told his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, in the spirit of this instruction, the priest is ordained by the church to be a mouthpiece for God's forgiveness, to apply his forgiveness to our sins. And this was a power that Jesus gave to the disciples, uh, his disciples, not as a right, but as a responsibility. In other words, we believe that you should hear that you are forgiven. And it's our role as shepherds to make sure that you do, that you know it, that you hear it. And this is called the absolution. It's the church who, that is speaking with Christ's authority to comfort us with the assurance of his forgiveness. But we don't stop there. We say what we call the comfortable words. And these words direct, uh, directly from the gospel, they were included by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, to deeply encourage people who in his time had lived in perpetual guilt for their sin, even trying to, to buy, them, buy themselves out of their sin before the Reformation. And so hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. The last thing that we do before communion is the passing of peace. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Really, it's in the spirit of that that we pass the peace. Maybe you fought with somebody on the way to church. You have an opportunity. You can't sort it all out here. Please don't try to do that. But you could pass the peace to them and go on and begin to turn our hearts toward the reconciliation that we have in Jesus. The peace affirms for us our essential unity as we prepare to come to the table and for us to take the table into the world as God's shalom, God's order and his peace. All right. Uh, The peace of the Lord be always with you. Can we stand together, share the Lord's peace, and grab your children if you have them. And we begin our offertory with the words from First Chronicles 29, as the people were bringing their gifts, this was the prayer that they prayed over the gifts and all the resources that they brought to help build the temple. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. All things come from you, O Lord. But who are we that we should be able to offer willingly, for all things come from you? And of your own have we given you. I'm going to invite you to just sit down for a couple of minutes more, squeeze your children in, because I'm going to try to do most of this before we, we get come to the Sursum Corda, as we call it, and before we begin uh, the Eucharist. We call this Holy Communion the Eucharist, which is from the Greek eucharisteo, which simply means thanksgiving. And that's what communion is at its base. We are receiving a gift. We are receiving a means of grace, a blessing through which we can encounter the presence of Christ just as he promised. And we receive it with thanksgiving. We don't earn it, and we don't, you know, it has no substitute. John 6, as we heard today in the gospel reading, Jesus said his disciples must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And then at his last Passover, he instituted this meal where we could do just that, tangibly and spiritually, by faith. Beyond any parable or metaphor, Jesus put literal bread and literal wine in their hands, in their mouths, and he said the the words that we will hear again today, what we call the words of institution. It became for the church the regular enactment of the new covenant, a sign of this promise of Jesus to redeem the world. Now, there are a couple of important symbols to notice at the table, which is at the centerpiece of our worship. Some people call it the altar. Um, This table is where Christ really offered himself in bread and wine to his disciples. There are two candles on either side that represent both the dual nature of Christ, God and man, but also the coming together at this table of the old and the new covenants 
right here in Jesus. We adorn the table and the pulpit with what we call paraments uh, to match the vestments of the priests. Now, you know, that, well, I'm going to give you a lot of terms. You don't have to uh, memorize these, but um, so they match these vestments that we wear. And as, as the priest celebrating the Eucharist, I wear what we call a stole over my shoulders. It really represents the yoke of Christ, being yoked with Christ and representing Christ as your servant today. Again, it isn't to make me look important. In fact, what I think of as I put it on is something that is meant to have in mind the, the, the taking off, that Jesus took off his outer garment and he began to wash feet. So it, it represents that yoke and that garment as I serve you. The colors tell the story. White is for our highest holy days like Easter and Christmas is also for weddings um, and days like All Saints. Green represents growth, the growth season of the church. Um, and we call it ordinary time. In other words, it's a time that we're counting. They all matter. All the Sundays matter. It's a time when Jesus' ministry was growing as in Epiphany right now. Purple is the color of repentance and that's, uh, or, or penitence, and that will be our color during Lent when we are particularly minded toward our own repentance. Sometimes we use plain linen during Lent. We also have what we call fair linen, which is on the table. Don't have time to talk a lot about that. But. And lastly, the color red is the color of the Holy Spirit. It's more rare in our usage, but it, we all, it's always uh, on Pentecost Sunday and um, during times uh, during Holy Week, but also during ordinations as we pray for the Holy Spirit to ordain and anoint those who are called to ministry. And now at this point in the liturgy, our worship, the Eucharist, is shaped by what Christ does. Not so much what I do, but what we are reminded that Christ does. A fourfold action in Luke 24, 30. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave, and this is particularly about the bread. During this first movement, he took. So we brought our, mo our monetary offerings up. Uh, we, at some times, we have in our past, we've processed the, the bread and the wine, brought them down actually to be, uh, to be here for us and for Christ to, to take. And so this is an offering that we bring to Christ to bless, much like his disciples actually prepared the elements for that last Passover in, uh, that they shared. So it's really a, a, about bringing a gift of our ordinary for Christ to make it extraordinary, not only these elements, but also our monetary gifts. And after the offering, we sang the doxology, means word of praise. You may not know this, the, 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 the metrical version that we sing and that many other churches sing was written by an Anglican bishop named Thomas Ken in the 17th century. So um, we were glad to allow the church worldwide to sing the song that we wrote. Just saying. The second movement, he blessed. So he took, he blessed. The Lord be with you is something that we as Anglicans often say right before a prayer. We jokingly can call it at times the Anglican interruption. So if you're in a room and you're loud and we need to pray, we say the Lord be with you if we need your, uh, your attention. It just gathers us to focus, to focus here. And then the sursum cordo, which just means literally lift up your hearts. It represents our self-offering to God. Jesus takes the bread. He takes the, the offerings, but he also takes our hearts to bless them. We lift them up. He blesses them. And so this sursum corda, it's been in the liturgy really since the third century. We know this because it was included in what was called the apostolic tradition, which was written by a third century uh, priest named Hippolytus. 
Then we have, after the Sursum Corda, I'll pray what we call the preface, which is assigned, you know, it's just, you'll hear it change within the first words that I pray sometimes. This is a little prayer that's put in there. And then we sing the Sanctus and Benedictus, which just means holy and blessing. Um, The Sanctus is sung unceasingly before the presence of God in heaven, according to Revelation 4, 8. So we're joining our voices with angels and archangels. And so we sing this hymn and do that. We also, we join it with the Benedictus, which uh, comes from Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, 9, where they sang, Hosanna, save us now. So you, you really have both this sense of what's going on in heaven, and we're joining our voices with angels and archangels, while at the same time we're crying out, save us now. There's a tension between those two songs, and we bring them together as we sing, all right? And during a long period leading up to the Middle Ages, the whole liturgy was actually sung. You know, why why do we sing, you know, uh, as part of this? Yeah, we say most of our liturgy, some even around the world sing the whole thing, Um, but we still use music, and that's not only because it unifies our voices and helps us remember to worship. But St. Augustine said this, he said, he who sings prays twice. And so songs have a way, as we sing them, a way of bringing something else beautiful out in us, right? And it unites us in a whole different way to a deeper sincerity. So then next comes the prayer of commemoration after that. It recalls the incarnation. It recalls the mighty works of God and of Christ for our salvation. And basically what it does is it succinctly tells the story of the gospel every Sunday. Even if I just preach a complete dud, just lay an egg, just don't, just don't get it done. Didn't sleep the night before, it doesn't matter. The, the truth is you will hear the gospel in the words of commemoration every Sunday. And so it begins on the night that he was betrayed. That's where the words of institution begin, which recall Jesus' instructions at the Last Supper and, of course, what Paul mentions today in 1 Corinthians 11. This is my body, this is my blood. So let's begin. Can we stand together? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right, our duty and our joy, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who took on our mortal flesh to reveal his glory, that he might bring us out of darkness and into his own glorious light. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and with archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name.
Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent your only Son into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. And as our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let me just say a word about mystery. This is an important idea for us. In Mark 4, Jesus told his disciples, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. In other words, of everything. Nearly 20 times Paul refers to the gospel as a mystery revealed. To Timothy, Paul says, hold the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. This reminds us of what? That, that what we believe, that what we proclaim is not from us. It has come to us by revelation. It isn't able to be just contained and systematized by our own understanding. It's a humbling reality. To believe in the death and the resurrection of the Son of God is to embrace a profound mystery. A lifelong mystery into the depths into which we are looking our whole lives. We want to be willing to proclaim that which was hidden and now revealed in Christ, but awaiting its fullness when Jesus returns, when we shall see face to face. Next, I'm going to pray what we call the epiclesis or an invocation, asking God to sanctify, to bless, to make holy, or to set apart this particular bread and this particular wine by his Holy Spirit, but also to set us apart by his Spirit today. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Sanctify us also that we may worthily receive this holy sacrament and be made one body with him so that he may dwell in us and we in him. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ and bring us with all your saints into the joy of your heavenly kingdom where we shall see our Lord face to face. Friends, when we pray for the Lord to sanctify both the sacrament and ourselves, very often we make the sign of the cross over ourselves at several points. Why do we do this? We do this as a tangible way to mark ourselves as belonging to Christ. It's a profession of faith, but it's even a sign that we are setting ourselves or even something or someone else apart for God in this moment. We cross ourselves when our prayers or when our creeds often refer to our bodies. Um, which belong to God and will be raised to life one day. So it's a physical prayer is what I want you to understand. It's not a superstitious expression. And let me just give you some, some really old thoughts about it for just a moment. In the fourth century, Cyril of Jerusalem wrote, let us not be ashamed to profess the crucified one. Let us confidently seal our forehead with our fingers. Let us make the sign of the cross on everything. 
The second century Tertullian was even more enthusiastic. I have to read this every time because it's just it's funny in, in some ways, but also amazing. He said, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at the table, when we light the lamps, when on the couch, on a seat, and in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace the sign upon our foreheads. Tertullian prayed a lot. He prayed physically a lot. So you don't have to do that. You know, as we, our answer, you know, to, to should I cross myself? And I, in one of our Anglicans 101 classes, a guy who's now in our vestry, he said, all right, convince me I should cross myself. And I just said to him the same thing that we tell others. All can, some will, none must. All right? There you have it. And then the invocation concludes with the great amen. It's a doxology to the Holy Trinity. We call it great uh, because we want you to really mean your response. Great as in loud. We want to get loud, giving our assent to these words of thanksgiving. So let's do it. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by Him and with Him and in Him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Love it. And now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. After we pray the prayer Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, we remember the third movement of Christ. He took, he blessed, and he broke. And we call this the fraction. We participate now in his once and for all sacrifice, which continues to sanctify us in his presence. Hebrews 10, 14, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you know that's what's happening in you and for you today? Being sanctified. After the bread is broken, we'll sing an anthem called the Agnus Dei, which comes from John the Baptist's words in John 1.29, and we're reminded that God's loving, merciful provision actually leads to our peace. Alleluia, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Alleluia. the fourth movement he gave and when we come to receive we open our hands like this to receive one over the other receiving a gift a sacrament in his body and blood and a sacrament is what saint augustine called 
an outward visible sign of an inward spiritual grace. So the bread and wine are a touchable. They are they're a tangible, tasteable expression of Christ's presence and his enduring love. We don't believe that the physical properties are or need to be changed of the bread and the wine for them to become this holy carrier of the life of Jesus. They are a physical means of spiritual grace. And received by faith, the spiritual presence of Christ is very powerful. And as your priest, I want you to know that I believe and I believe for you that this is healing and it's transforming and it helps us. And that we don't just want you to be a church attender, but, but to know also as you come to church, you are receiving a great blessing that you need. We believe you need it. So this is why we always want to invite you to come and to be together, to be strengthened in your faith through this moment of communion with Christ together. And last thing on this, not only does this moment connect our past to Christ and to Israel's uh, worship you know, history and the Passover rescue, but it actually is a foretaste of the meal to come, the meal that awaits us. For Jesus told his disciples in Luke 22, he said, I will not eat this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So we're living in a space as we receive together between the now and the not yet, between what Christ has given us and what he intends and waits to have with us, that communion, the fullness that awaits us one day. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together in thanksgiving for what we've just received. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out into the world to do the work you have given us to do to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. And the order for the conclusion of our worship uh, may be different from parish to parish, but at this point, the priest confers God's blessing upon us as we are sent out. We're about to not have a recessional, but a processional into the world. We came in. And we're going out into the world. And so that's what we'll do as we sing one last hymn. And at Village Church, we regularly borrow from the, our Kenyan brothers and sisters for this blessing. Honestly, we've tried to mix it up a little bit. But every time we take it out of our liturgy, people are like, what do you want me to do with my problems and all my difficulties? I need to send them to the cross. So Kenya knows something that we don't. And so we do this. And it just echoes, even it might seem strange that, as I've mentioned before, that we're talking about the works of the devil, but this just comes right out of John's epistle to us, that Jesus defeated the works of the devil, and we needed that from him, and we have that from him and in him. We believe it, all right? All our problems, we send to the cross of Christ. All our difficulties, we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ. And all our hopes, 
we set on the risen Christ. Now Christ, the Son of righteousness, shine upon you and scatter the darkness from before your path. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. We made it. Rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.